Let's get into the message. Let's get into the message. Don't intend to speak real long this morning, okay? I just want to get right into the text this morning. Let's jump right into it. Um, Luke, the gospel according to Luke. Dr. Luke, he was a physician, actually. He gives us, he's had a great eye for detail. Um, So Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 34, and then 39 through 43. Let me read them to you from the New Living Translation this morning. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to a cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one in his right and one in his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Skipping down to verse 39. One of the criminals who was hanging beside him scoffed, So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve, listen to this confession. We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Last week we started a a four-part teaching series we're doing leading up to and concluding on Easter called Vantage Point. And basically what we're doing is we're going into one story. We'll be in this story every week. But at risk of keeping it fresh, what we're going to do is we're going to go into that story, this crucifixion scene, which is very pivotal and important for for those of us who call Christ our Savior. We're going to go into that scene and we're going to look at it from four different vantage points, almost as if we hired four different film crews to film the same event. And this week we're going to look through camera one. Next week we're going to look through camera two and then camera three and camera four. We're looking at them all together to try and see what was going on in the minds of the people who were actually there. So last week we looked through the lens, through the perspective, the vantage point of the centurion. Okay? This week we're going to shift and we're going to look at what was going on at the crucifixion through the vantage point of the two criminals that hung on Jesus' right and on his left. Um, one of the easiest ways for us to read through the New Testament, especially through the Gospels, to, it, to get some fresh meaning from it, is read it as though it was kind of like an autobiography. And at different places, insert yourself in the story. And kind of imagine what it would have been like. At one point, you're Peter in the boat, and Jesus is asking you to do something totally illogical. And you're kind of testing him out. And you put yourself in the boat and kind of imagine what he's imagining, thinking what he's thinking, feeling what he's feeling, seeing what he's seeing. And you keep reading yourself in the story at different places and and try and get a better idea of what's going on there. So that's what we're doing here. We're going to put ourselves into the vantage point of the two criminals. Other translations spell it out a little more specifically and call them the two thieves. So today we're going to look at the two thieves. Um, There's a little bit about, (laughs) this is an uncomfortable statement, there's a little of those two thieves and what they represent in each of us. I don't like being thought of as a criminal. I don't like being thought of as a thief. I don't like putting myself into those shoes. I would like to think of myself as a little more righteous and clean and noble and moral than that. But for purposes of our discussion this morning, let's put ourselves in the position of those two thieves. Here's the first thing that jumps out to me that's, that's kind of, Similar between the thieves and me. The thieves deserved the punishment they received. In your notes, number one, the thieves deserved the punishment they received. Here's the facts. In, in this instance, the two thieves, thief right and thief left, they're identical. In terms of the law, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the people... They were convicted criminals. They were no longer just accused. They had been tried. They had been sentenced. And now they were being punished for what they actually did. They were guilty. 
Next part in your notes. We know that they were robbers, even though their specific crime isn't mentioned. If you look at all the different translations, when they break that Greek language down and move it into English, the Greek word indicates that they were thieves. I don't know what they took. I don't know how many times they took it. I don't know how big or small it was. I have no idea. All we know is that they were thieves. Now, some scholars believe that they were kind of contemporaries and cronies in a network with this dude named Barabbas. I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell me that for sure. So that's just a theory. We can't prove that conclusively. We know they were guilty of stealing things that didn't belong to them. And under their law, if you stole whatever they stole as many times as they stole it, the sentence was death by crucifixion. So they had been tried, they had been convicted, and they were crucified. Here's the, to take it even a step further, the next part you notes, these two even admitted from their own mouths that they were guilty. They even admitted it. The one guy says, we deserve what we're getting because of our crimes. We did it. Isn't there something refreshing about open, honest confession? I did it. I make no excuse. The facts were, I stole something. And I own it. I own responsibility for that. I regret it. I shouldn't have done it. These are the facts. Confession is simply agreeing with the facts that God already knows to be true. And I wonder how many of us respond that way when confronted with something we did wrong. Are we quick to accept responsibility for it? Do we like saying those words, I'm wrong? (laughs) You're right. Sometimes those words just get hung up in our mouth somewhere. But he admitted openly and honestly, we are 100% guilty. So, Pastor, what does this have to do with us 2,000 years later? Well, here's where I would say this last part of that section in your notes. In the same way, we have to own up to our own sins and the corresponding punishment that we deserve. They did. Now, this isn't fun, and this isn't pleasant. And uh, occasionally in my life, I've gotten criticized for talking too much about this. And I don't like to dwell on it. I don't don't like inflicting pain on people. But I believe very seriously that the pathway to me even getting saved begins with me admitting that I need to be saved. And how do I know I need to be saved if I think I'm all right? I have to look into my soul and see, you know what? I've done some crimes too, and I deserve some kind of punishment for them. And inside all of us, we're kind of hardwired with this craving for justice. What do you mean by that? I mean, we kind of root for the bad guy to get caught and get the punishment he deserves. Do you remember where you were the night that President Obama announced that we had got Osama bin Laden? How many of you remember where you were that night? It's a Saturday night. Maybe you don't remember where you were, but how many of you remember the announcement? Do you remember when the words are trickling out that, that we got him? We got him. How many of you remember? Okay, a bunch of you do. Do you remember the atmosphere around our country when we found that out? I remember seeing the camera footage. I mean, people were, and in my lifetime, this hasn't happened too many times, but I, I remember we were in bed on Saturday night. We were, we were kind of getting ready to fall asleep, and the, you know, the little crawler comes up across the bottom of the screen that at 9 o'clock, President Obama's calling a news conference and all the stations have to go there. And we're like, what in the world? What is going on? Did someone drop a dirty bomb somewhere? Did some, I mean, our minds are starting to whirl. And then all of a sudden, we get up closer to it. They had kind of figured, hey, we got him. And he announces it. And they start showing footage all over the country. There's people dancing in the streets. There's people celebrating and waving flags. 
And why were we so happy? Well, we were, we were filled with joy and a sense of vindication because this guy, this criminal, this guy who masterminded the death of thousands of innocent Americans and people all over the world, this, this, this guy got what we thought he deserved. He took lives, his life should be taken. And there was this feeling of joy and elation and, and celebration and in a very loose connection. Those voices kind of joined with the people around the cross that day too. Maybe it wasn't so much joy around the cross, but there was a public sentiment of vindication and justice being exacted on the people crucified on the cross. They saw them as criminals, guilty, and they were getting what they justly deserved. Now let me ask you, is it a bad thing for us to crave justice? I don't think so. I think it's a good thing for... Justice is a good thing. I wouldn't want to raise my kids in a society where people aren't held accountable for the bad that they do. That we have justice in place to deter people from doing worse things. We want them to understand that if you do this crime, there is a punishment, and the punishment is supposed to scare you away from doing the crime. Or else everybody would just commit crimes. Do what they want and what they felt right. It helps us keep some sense of moral compass. I don't think it's a bad thing that we crave justice, but can I ask you this? Can we turn the lens around for a second on this and look at ourselves? Do we really want everybody to get justice? Do we really want everybody to get what they deserve? Justice is two things. It's about being rewarded for what is rightfully mine, but it's about being punished for what's rightfully my responsibility. Do you really want everybody to get justice? Because here's what I think. I think most of us, if we were honest, would say the following. I want everyone on the face of the earth to get the punishment they rightly deserve, except for me. Because you see, if we really want justice, and God is a God of justice, if we really want justice, then you and I are not exempt from that. Then you and I have to say, then God, start with me too. I don't only just want the reward I rightly deserve, but then God, I need to also accept the punishment that I appropriately deserve too. And part of me reading myself in the story was that you had two thieves hanging on the other side of Jesus that were very aware that they had done wrong and they were getting the consequences of it. And one person was willing to accept it and the other person wasn't. And the person who accepted what he deserved found Jesus as a savior. The person who rejected that and didn't even want to talk about it and just shifted the blame to somebody else died without knowing Jesus. So what is the punishment that you and I rightfully deserve? Can I bring you to Romans chapter 6 verse 23? The wages, or another word, the penalty for sin is, is what? It's death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through upright moral behavior. No. The free gift of God is eternal life through church attendance and tithing and volunteering and being on the load-in team. Mm -mm. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but you know, what do I really deserve when I sin? What does the Bible say? What do I deserve? What's my penalty? Death. When I choose what I want over what God wants, even the little tiny innocuous things, you know what I deserve? Death. That's justice. That's justice. And I don't know about you, but I don't want the penalty of sin. I don't want justice for that. I want mercy. I want the free gift. But until you come to the terrifying conclusion that you need to be saved from your sins, you will never cling to a Savior. Until you look into your own soul and say, I don't think I'm too righteous. I don't think I'm too pure. 
I've got sin in there, and that carries with it a consequence of death, and I don't want that. And there's nothing I can do about that. Only then will you realize, I really need someone to save me from this. And only then will you ever make a commitment to a Savior that you'll cling to. Otherwise, you might be moved in a moment of an emotion to follow Jesus, and then in another moment of emotion to walk away. And you see this cycle of attaching to Jesus and defection, and attaching to Jesus and defection. And I've always wondered why. God, why do I see so many people come to church and make some type of decision to you and then walk away? And I think it comes down to the fact was those people never really attached to him because they never really looked into their soul. And dealt with their own sin. And admitted that they needed a Savior. If you don't think you need Him tomorrow, you won't cling to Him. If you're just scared of going to hell, and it's that fear that makes you make a decision, the moment you're not scared of hell anymore, you won't cling to Jesus. This is why we have to come to a place where we own up to the dysfunction and the darkness in our own hearts. And say, I am a criminal. You can use a different word. I've sinned. I've chosen me over God. And I have no remedy for that. I own it. I confess it. But the awareness of that will drive you to look for somebody to save you and then you'll discover Him waiting right there for you. And you will cling to Him and you will never let go. Second thing I see about the thieves. Second thing I see there is that the thieves responded to Jesus differently. They responded to Jesus differently. They were identical in terms of their guilt. But in their response to who Jesus was and what he was doing, they were completely opposite. Their individual responses to Jesus came from two opposing vantage points. And I want you to listen very carefully to their different responses. One, because we get two things here. We get an alarming warning out of this passage. There's a warning laid in this text. And then, but there's also some hope. So let me give you the warning first. Here's the warning. One thief rejected Jesus. He rejected him. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. So both criminals were arrested. They were tried. They were convicted. They were sentenced to death by crucifixion for crimes they actually committed. Both of them witnessed Jesus Christ suffer the same punishment for a crime he didn't commit. Both of them heard Jesus plead with God for mercy for everybody, in the, everybody around the cross, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The soldiers, the centurion, the thieves, the mockers, he's saying, God, please forgive them. They both heard him do this. Yet the first thief, when confronted with this love, with the mercy, with the holiness, all he could do is spew forth mockery, sarcasm, and anger. He was unable and unwilling to see his own need for the Savior, even though he was dying for him right next to him. How many people in history were closer to the crucifixion than those two guys? Here's here's the thing that really fills me with terror. Here's a guy who was that close to Jesus. He was there when he died. It's not a theory to him. He's not skeptical. He was there. It was a fact. He didn't read it somewhere. He was there. And yet that wasn't enough to save him. It wasn't enough for him to change. And this messes with kind of everything I've ever been taught about leading people to Jesus. I've always kind of operated on the assumption, hey, if we can just get him into a church and get him into a seat and make the message interesting enough and clever enough and move the right, or whatever, you know, if we can just drive the message home and if we could just kind of tie people down against their will and they could hear the gospel, they'll just get saved. That's just not the case, is it? That's just not the case. 
what this shows me is that it is possible for a man's heart to be so hardened towards God that even a clear presentation of the gospel from Jesus Christ himself on the cross next to him didn't change him. That scares me. Here's the warning. That means it's possible for you or me to get to a place where our heart is so hard. That even a face-to-face encounter with Jesus will make us walk away even more angry and upset and hard than we were when we first talked to him. Don't think it couldn't happen to you. This guy wasn't born thinking that he'd end up there. But you have to understand it is possible for your heart to get hardened. For your conscience to get seared. So you get to the point where you handle sin so frequently and so regularly that you don't even sense your own sinfulness anymore. To the point where the presence of God does nothing for you. It's here. It happened. He's hanging there next to the crucified Christ rejecting the Savior over his life. That's the warning to all of us. The terrifying fact of the matter is that if Jesus himself appeared today and walked the streets of White Marsh and went to the mall and started offering forgiveness to people, many people would reject him. If he was there, he could walk in here this morning and some of you would still be wondering about if you can get to Panera Bread before the crowd gets there. Don't think you're keeping your heart. Well, how does someone's heart get that hard? How does someone get to that point a day at a time? You feel a sense of conviction when you do something wrong and you ignore it, your heart gets a little harder. God tugs on you and you think he's asking you to do something, to be something, to change something, to stop something, and you resist it, your heart gets harder, says the Bible. Every time you resist the Holy Spirit, it's as though a veil of deception goes over your heart. Paul said it this way. He said there's people whose consciences, which is an interesting topic in and of itself, kind of that your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Two different things. That's why I teach consciences. Everybody has a conscience. Not everybody has a Holy Spirit living inside. Your conscience is this kind of built-in moral indicator, right? But it's not perfect because it can even be seared as if with a hot iron. And what does that mean? I used to work room service in college. I might have told this story before. I'll tell it again. I, work, I worked room service in college. And the first time I was in the kitchen, um, running room service up and down to the floors, um, my job was to, you know, to take the phone call, to enter the order in the computer, and then take the plates from the cooks, put them on the trays, move them upstairs. What I didn't realize was those plates they put up in those windows were scalding hot. The reason I didn't realize they were hot is because I watched all the cooks bare hand these plates, put the filet on it, put up, the, you know, I'm watching them handle it. And they were all kind of looking forward. They knew it was my first day. They're like, hey, Philip, your, your orders are up in the window. So I go over there, I grab on that first plate, and I'm telling you, I got it about this far. And it was that hot. I dropped it, shattered the plate, steak went everywhere. It burnt my hands. That plate was so hot. I had never handled something that hot. My nerve endings and my fingers were just sending me all kinds of alert. Drop the thing now or you will have much more pain. And it just, just happened instinctively. I had to get like a wet towel and use that. And they thought it was so funny. The wet towel would hiss a little bit when I grabbed the plates. They were that hot. I was like, how do those chefs handle those plates without... And one of them told me, he said, look, man, I've been handling plates like this for the last 15 years. It has numbed the nerve endings in my fingers so that when I grab a hot plate, I've handled it so many times, I don't feel any pain any longer. The more frequently you handle sin and things you shouldn't, the more you sear your conscience. It doesn't shock. It doesn't sting. 
Stop watching TV for a week sometime and then turn it back on after a week and watch how your nerve endings come back. You'll be like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize there was so much sex in commercials. I didn't realize, because it's, it's just there all the time. If you're around people that are negative and critical a lot, go on a fast from talking to them for about a week and then go back in the conversation, let those nerve endings grow back. Like, Oh man, I didn't realize how negative and cynical these people were. It's part of what happens. How does your heart get hard? A day at a time. A day at a time. You know what the end result of it is? This. Where you can, have an, you can be in a place where you can have an encounter with Jesus and he's trying to talk to you and it just bounces right off of you as though it's nothing. How do I know if my heart's hard? You're slow to realize you've done wrong. You do wrong and it takes you forever to figure it out or you never figure it out. That's a symptom. You're quick to deny responsibility when confronted with your sins. You don't ever want to say that you're wrong. You always want to push it off on other people. It's a sign your heart's hard. You believe you're too righteous to need repentance. I'm too good of a person. I don't need a savior. You know you've done wrong and you see no need to change. You feel no emotive connection to the presence of God. You have no compassion for the weak or tolerance for the needy. There's two groups of people I have great compassion for. There's more than that, but it's two, pe- two, um, two categories of people. One is for those that are completely lost and they don't know they're lost. People that, are, that, that aren't following Jesus, that are just ignorant, they don't even know that he's out there. I have great compassion for them. I also have great passion, compassion for people who confessed Christ as their Savior but have hard hearts. People say, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, I pay my tithes. I know pastors that have hard hearts. How do you know that they have hard hearts? I have pastors that I know not closely were people that I've seen, pastors that I've seen that were living in complete sin in their private life and standing in the pulpit on Sunday and seeing people saved. How does that happen? You have a hard heart. You click it off. I don't even feel sinful for my sins anymore. How does that happen? I know people sitting in churches, hopefully nobody here this morning, but maybe it's you. You claim Jesus as your Savior, but sin doesn't even bother you. You don't think repentance isn't for you. It's for the guy at the end of your row. Today, if you can hear the voice of God at all, don't harden your heart. If there's even a twinge of you that says, maybe I need to let the Holy Spirit back in to excavate, will you please yield to that this morning? Because if you don't, guess what? It's going to harden even more. Don't be that person who says, I know Jesus is my Savior. But there ain't nothing wrong with me. That's a hard heart. And it puts you on this pathway being like this guy. But here's the hope. Here's the hope. One thief, one thief accepted Jesus. He asked Jesus to remember him. Here's the hope for all of us. If you can still feel the tug of the Holy Spirit that you've done wrong, if you're still able and willing to honestly and openly confess your sins, if you're prepared to just accept full responsibility, take ownership of your wrongdoings without making excuses, guess what? You will indeed come to the terrifying conclusion that you need a Savior. And when you come to this conclusion, you will find your Savior awaiting you. You'll cling to Jesus who became your substitute when he died on the cross for all your sins. You'll be transformed by his love. You'll be drawn to his mercy. You will call to him to remember you, and he will. That's the hope for all of us. This other guy said, Man, this is the Son of God. Shouldn't you be afraid? (laughs) Shouldn't you be afraid? This is God's Son right here, man. And you're mocking God's Son. In light of what we've done, he says, Jesus, will you remember me? Jesus says, yeah, I'll remember you. That's the message to all of us. If you can still feel a twinge of conviction in your heart, you recognize you've done wrong, 
All you have to do is confess it to Jesus. He's waiting to re- He'll remember you. He'll cover things over. He's waiting to accept you and receive you. That's the hope. So if you feel like I'm in danger of being that person with a hard heart, if you even feel a sense of fear that you're in danger, that's the Holy Spirit letting you know, hey, your heart's not that hard that I can't still penetrate you. Get in there. Capture your attention. What do I need to do then? Just turn to Jesus. Confess it to him. He'll remember you. Last thing. Jesus responded to the thieves accordingly. I'll close with this. He does this interesting thing that's kind of tricky to talk about. Jesus asked God to forgive them both. And the one dude didn't even ask him to forgive him. So what does that mean? Just responded to them accordingly. He said, God, forgive them. Not just those guys. Forgive them all. They don't know what they're doing. So when Jesus pleads with his dad to forgive the sins of his abusers, it raises this tricky issue we have to wrestle with real briefly this morning. I can't unpack this the whole way, but I thought about this when I answered this. How does God respond to the person who sins without really knowing that they're sinning? How does he respond to Sins of ignorance, shall we say. Let's just unpack this real quick. Here's the facts. For a while, we were all ignorant. For a while, we didn't know how bad our wrongdoing really was. When I was a kid, trust me, my parents helped me know when I did something wrong. They brought it to my attention. They punished me. They popped my hand, popped my mouth, give me, you know, you know, today we want to talk and have them use their words and all these kinds of things. And that's fine. You, you parent however you feel like you need to parent. All right. We'll talk about that another Sunday once I figured it out. Give me another 80 years and maybe I'll have something to say on that. But my parents helped me figure out. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I had no idea what sin was when I was a kid. I had no idea. I had no idea the full consequence of when I did something wrong. I didn't know. I was ignorant. As a teenager, I did even more stuff wrong. And I knew usually what I was doing was wrong, but I didn't realize that what I was doing was rejecting God and denying His wisdom and denying His power. And incurring on me these death penalties. I didn't realize all that. I was kind of ignorant to that. But here's the deal. At some point, I had to come to a place where I confessed that, yeah, I might be ignorant of some of these things. And maybe my ignorance mitigates some of the criminality of what I'm doing. But I'm guilty enough, and so I need to own up for that. I have to own up to it. Let me ask you this. In our society, you get pulled over by the cop, and he says you were speeding. Well, officer, I didn't even know. You going to get off? Nope. Well, officer, I didn't know that it, I didn't know it was a 25 and I couldn't be doing 70. Never once have I heard of a story and maybe it's happened, so I know you just save your emails if this has happened, all right? But look, it's very rare. I have not heard the story where someone says that to an officer. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't know that I couldn't do that. And he says, "Oh, well, in that case, have a nice day." Even the laws we break in ignorance are still broken laws. Why would Jesus need to ask God to forgive them if there was no sin there? He recognized what he's saying is, God, these people are sinning. They don't know they're sinning. Will you sinning? Will you please have some mercy on them? What Jesus is essentially saying is, God, there is still a penalty to be paid here. Will you mitigate the penalty a little bit because they're not meaning to be criminal? But they still needed forgiveness. But it says even in the Old Testament, there were sins of ignorance. And they still had a penalty. They had to come and pay a sacrifice for those things. So the point here is that even the sins we commit in ignorance are still sins. They still need to be forgiven. They still incur a debt between us and God. And Jesus was appealing to God for mercy for all of them for the sins that they were doing out of ignorance. But you and I have to come to a place where we stop pleading ignorance as an excuse and we own up. You know what? Whether I knew it or I didn't, my unintentional sins need forgiveness. My intentional sins need forgiveness. And it's the same God that gives forgiveness for both.
But then Jesus only promised to remember the repentant thief. I love that Jesus promises to remember the repentant. This guy had lived his whole life a sinner. Convicted of the same stuff as the other guy. He had no good works to bring to Jesus. He had no track record of upright moral behavior to bring to Jesus. He didn't even have a whole lot more life afterwards to make up for his previous life. He didn't pray a long prayer. He had never heard a sermon. He had never attended a church. He had never been baptized. But he didn't think that he was too good or too bad for a savior. He simply says, I deserve what I'm getting because of the crimes I committed. We would call that confession, admitting our sins to God. This man has done nothing wrong. He's the son of God. That would be an acceptance by faith of who Jesus really is. And then he makes an appeal. Will you please remember me? When you get to heaven. In other words, he knows where Jesus is going and who he's going to reunite with. That was his faith. When you get there, and I know you're going there because you are who you say you are. Will you remember me? And Jesus says, I will remember you. You'll be with me today. You'll be with me today. Friends, it's that simple. That's the vantage point we look at in this story. So will you maybe pause this morning and ask the Holy Spirit to look through your heart and make you aware of any sin that needs to be repented for? Will you not just make an emotional plea to your Will you cling to your Savior as though you know you really need him to save you from yourself and from your sin? If you're here this morning and you are hard-hearted, will you yield to the chiseling work of Christ's presence in this room this morning? Maybe you don't know Jesus yet. Will you? Can I invite you just to make an appeal to him this morning to remember you? He will. Can I pray over you this morning as we close our service? God, we pause. We pause. I want to yield to the warning of this passage, and I don't want to be the guy that lives through my whole life with a hard heart, thinking I'm better than what I actually am. I don't want to think that I'm worse than I actually am either. I know we can take this to an extreme, and we can be so introspective and so hyper-aware of the sin and the yuck in our life that we live depressed, defeated lives, and that's an unhealthy extreme. That's not where you ask us. You don't want us to You don't want us to look down at ourselves constantly and just be hyper-focused on our failures. But we do want to be aware of who we are and who we aren't accurately. So Holy Spirit, will you chisel through some of the layers of some of the hard hearts in the room? All of us here this morning, God, we, in our own way, we we present ourselves to you again and we confess we've sinned. You know the specifics, but we agree with the facts as they are. And none of us are exempt from the justice system. We know the, the punishment attached to every sin is death. And that's not an easy thing to swallow. It's a fact, it's a barrier for a lot of us in coming to know you. We can't reconcile that with a loving God. Would you love us enough to let us know what the penalties are and give us a way out of it? That's love. You being mean or ignorant or evil would mean you'd know what all the penalties were and never tell us and let us find out at the end of the game when there's nothing to do about it. But you'd let us know. 
Thank you for that. We humble ourselves before you this morning. We want to take, we want to look through the vantage point of the thief that hung on your left that you didn't see him as a thief. You saw him as a son. That's what we want to look through this morning. If you're here today, friend, and and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus before, you've never surrendered to Jesus, you've never confessed your sins to him, you've never invited him to, to come into your life, you've never begun a personal relationship with him, but you feel something tugging inside of you today. You feel an awareness of your need for a Savior. You don't have to look any further. That's him making himself known to you. I want to lead you in a prayer of commitment to Jesus, a simple prayer. But you might also be here this morning and say, you know what, I have made a commitment to follow Jesus, but as the Holy Spirit's been chiseling through my heart this morning, I'm aware I'm, I'm not at the place that I thought that I was. And God, I'm not moving in the right direction in my life. I'm not moving closer to the image of Jesus. I'm, I'm actually maybe taking some steps backward or just sitting in neutral. And today I want to, I want to, get, I want to get back in the right trajectory with my life. And I want to make things absolutely right with Jesus. I want to clear the air. You can pray along too. Here's a prayer I would lead you in. Jesus, I admit I've done wrong and I'm a sinner. I do things my way. I don't do things your way. I own it. I accept responsibility for it. I make no excuses. Those are the facts. But I want my story to change today. I recognize that if I do nothing, I will eventually have to pay the price for my sins. And I don't want to do that. I instead want to accept the free gift you make available through Jesus Christ. Not through any effort, not through any program I have to complete on my own. Just through Jesus, just through my faith in Him. So Jesus, today I I profess my faith in You. I believe in You. I believe You are who You said You are. I believe You did die on that cross as a substitute for my sins. And I accept the penalty that you paid for. I accept that today into my life. So I just invite you to come into my life, to begin a personal relationship with me. I want to have conversations with you. I want to know you better. Thank you for giving me hope and for giving me life. I don't deserve it, but I am the joyful recipient. In your precious name I pray, amen. Can I ask you to just stand with me all over the room? We're going to close our service right here. So if I could just ask you to stand. As you stand, I'm going to invite our prayer team members to come forward. They're going to stand on either side of the speakers. We have a lot to be thankful for this week. John W. and Deanna Burke had their little baby boy happy and healthy. You know, an amazing testimony. They weren't able to have children either. And God, they prayed for a child and God brought it into their life. We got to hold that little boy on uh, Friday night, I think, Friday afternoon. We went and visited them. Just a few clicks under seven pounds. And of course, John and Joy are the happy grandparents. And Jenna and Julie are the happy aunts. And it just, it's just, just a perfect little kid. I mean, just... Oh, I got in trouble because it's like, that's the cutest baby I ever saw. And Kendra said, not cuter than our baby. You know, and it's like, well, no, he's really cute. Just a cute little baby. Just answer to prayer, this wonderful little boy. Heard this week that uh, two people who you see regularly here at Echo, Patrick Nolan and Maggie Hoffman, got engaged. And they're getting ready to start their new life together here shortly. We're thrilled with that. I talked with Jackson, who had asked prayer a few Sundays ago for, for a job to come through the very next day. GBMC called him and he started and he's got a great job at GBMC that we're so thrilled about. Got to 
celebrate with him this morning. God's doing some great things. And there's lots of other testimonies I know that are going on. But we have testimonies and needs and testimonies and needs. And it's just those cycles in our life. But the testimonies are good because they build our faith the next time a need comes around. But you might be here this morning with something going on in your life. And in just a moment, we'll bring a dismissal to the service. If you're ready to go, you need to go, you want to go, God bless you. God bless you. But if you want to stick around for a few minutes just to pray or to just spend a few more moments in worship, maybe to think about something that was going on in the message, I invite you to do that too. So I'm going to pray a prayer of blessing over you. And then if you've got a need going on in your life, you're welcome to slip out of your seats, come to any one of our prayer partners here. We'll stand with you, pray with you, encourage you, give you something to, to keep moving on, get some, get some momentum and motivation going into your week. Let me pray for you. God, thank you so much for your presence this morning. I thank you for these people. Because here's the reality, that, and I know this, God. I know they're not here because we've got this amazing church building. I know they're not here because every seat in this big auditorium is full on Sunday morning. I know they're not here because we have the most amazing lights and the most amazing staff and the most amazing this or that. They're not here because of any clever marketing or giving. They're here because you drew them here because they want to be part of what you're doing here in Perry Hall through Echo. And there's a lot of things they're willing to look beyond because they believe in your vision over this house. I pray your favor and your blessing, your wisdom and your peace upon each and every man, woman and child in this room. May they be blessed when they wake up and blessed when they go to sleep. Lord, may they have clear wisdom this week for decisions that they know are coming and for decisions that they have to make in real time that are going to sweep them off their feet. May they have peace from you that passes all logic and hamster wheel spinning that keeps them awake at night. May they just have peace even if we don't have answers yet. May they have health in their bodies. May they have confidence to believe you for impossible things. May this be a week where kids return to parents whose relationships have been severed. May this be the week that those who have wrestled with this weight of depression feel a sense of levity in their lives for the first time in a long time. For those who are paralyzed by anxiety, let them sleep eight uninterrupted hours this evening. For those who believe you've forgotten about their finances, will you bring clarity and relief today? For those who have deadlines this week, will you make it obvious, open the right door and slam the wrong one this week in just enough time for them to make the decision? For those who think you've forgotten about them, remind them you haven't. Be true to your word and defend your reputation. We don't deserve it, but we love you. And may 2013 be the year that your name is lifted up in Baltimore County and in Perry Hall and in White Marsh and in Nottingham. That territory that the enemy has claimed for his changes hands spiritually. Whether they end up at this church or another at no church, may they end up in your kingdom. In your mighty and matchless name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.